Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. A That's Not Gunner Productions podcast. Hi there, and welcome back to OOF, Right in the Childhood, a podcast where we discuss the history and social implications of the Disney animated feature films. I'm Jen, and each week I tell you the history of a Disney film, and then I watch the movie and provide you a synopsis that includes modern sociological observations. This week, I'll be talking about 1961's 101 Dalmatians, the reason you should cut toxic people out of your life. This will also be the last episode in the main feed for the rest of 2020. In the past weeks, I've been really squeezed for time due to life and medical stuff, and it's getting to a point where I always feel like I'm rushing to get an episode written and recorded in time for my amazing volunteer editor, Anastasia, to edit before I post, and I don't see next month's holidays improving on that. When I can't put my best effort forward, that's not fair to any of us. So for December, there will be a bonus episode available on Patreon. Because it comes out tomorrow, I'm going to spoil it for you. Tomorrow, you can tune in to the Patreon feed at the $5 Fairy Godmother level to get the history and my reactions to the first time ever watching the Star Wars Holiday Special. There will also be a January bonus episode on Patreon on January 1st, and oof, right in the childhood, will return to all your podcatchers with The Sword in the Stone on January 11th, 2021. I have plenty of guests booked for the new year, and I have some wishlist requests I'm reaching out to for the future. In the meantime, this is a great time to recommend the podcast to someone who's never heard it before. Get them all cut up over the next five weeks because we're about to hit the Disney Bronze Era and that's where the real Disney turmoil starts. Anyway, enough for podcast news, let's talk about 101 Dalmatians. The history on this one's a little sparse, so we'll get a sponsor break a little faster this week, but the movie's packed with stories, so I hope to make up for it. The 101 Dalmatians was a book published by Dodie Smith in 1956. Ironically, my mother-in-law's nickname is Dodie, and I had no idea that was a real name until just now. Smith's book isn't that different from the movie, except the couple is married from the beginning, the husband is some kind of financial genius who's been exempt from taxes for his whole life, and there are two female dogs. One is Mrs., and I think she's the biological mother of the puppies, and the other, Perdita, is like an adopted mom. Again, I haven't read the book, I'm summing it up from sources from the internet. Otherwise, it's pretty much the same. 
Walt Disney read the book in 1957 and immediately inquired upon the rights. It's really funny. When I was a kid, I knew Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, and Cinderella were fairy tales from long ago. But if you'd asked me about movies like 101 Dalmatians or Dumbo, I would have told you I thought that they were just unique stories that the Disney writers made up. Once Walt had the rights, he handed them over to Bill Pete to write the script. Two things here. First, no Disney animated film had ever been written by one person, and Bill Pete had no idea how to use a typewriter. So, Bill wrote the entire screenplay by hand, combining some of the characters to minimize their need for actors. It only took two months before he handed a stack of yellow legal pads over to a typist. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a hilariously terrible moment for that poor typist. The animation didn't start until 1959, and by that time, Sleeping Beauty had fallen flat on its face, and Walt was beginning to feel like his beloved animation was failing him. He'd been fully dedicated to Sleeping Beauty, and the studio had lost a ton of money on it. He told Eric Larson he was considering shutting down the animation department altogether, but because he'd built the company on animation, he didn't want to. During Sleeping Beauty, one of the animators named Ub Iwerks had developed a method using the Xerox camera to transfer drawings directly onto animation cells, which allowed the animators to skip the inking process. Ken Anderson suggests they utilize this technique for 101 Dalmatians, and Walt, whom I can only suppose was just completely dejected at this point, replied, Ah, yeah, yeah, you can fool around all you want. The animators went into full swing using the xerography technique, and it worked wonders. Using xerography, they were able to easily replicate each of the Dalmatians and their spot patterns without spending hours to replicate them manually. The film was finished for less than half its budget, but Walt wasn't thrilled with the final project. When he watched it, he felt like the literal copy-pasting took away some of the fantasy from the picture. He swore never to use xerography again and joked that, quote, Ken will never be an art director again. Anderson was pretty hurt by this statement, but he tells a story of seeing Walt in 1966 and having Walt say, quote, that thing you did on Dalmatians wasn't so bad, and then finding out that Walt had died a few weeks later. The xerography did its job, though. In the end, 101 Dalmatians only cost Walt Disney Productions $3.6 million, or $31.3 million when adjusted for inflation. When you consider that the movie would have cost twice that much, I can't imagine how happy Roy Disney must have been for that. However, the real test was yet to come. The movie was released into theaters around the world in January of 1961. That's right. For the first time since World War II, we finally have an international box office to discuss. I still don't know if movies just weren't released internationally or if no one recorded international box offices until the 1960s. The movie brought in $14 million, or $121.9 million today, from domestic box offices in the U.S. and Canada. But it wasn't done. The total amount earned from the world was $85 million, or $739.9 million today. It was the highest grossing movie for the year, as well as the most popular movie in France for 1961. In fact, it's still the 10th most popular movie of all time for France. The reviews were pretty good. Even the New York Times liked it, stating, While the story moves steadily toward a stark, melodramatic chase climax, it remains enclosed in a typical Disney frame of warm family love, human and canine, and said it was the best Disney movie since Snow White. And, like all the rest of the classic Disney movies, it was re-released in 1969, 79, 85, and 91, with a total lifetime box office of $303 million, which, when adjusted for inflation, brings it just over $900 million and makes it the 12th highest-grossing film, according to Box Office Mojo. Incidentally, on that list, 14 out of the top 100 highest-grossing movies 
are Disney animated feature films. That's certainly nothing to sneeze at. So did the xerography pay off? Was this movie as good as it was cheap? Or did Disney actually get what they paid for, but audiences still loved it? I'll be back after this short sponsor break to discuss my feelings on watching this movie for the first time in a couple of decades. I want to take a moment to thank my supporters on Patreon. Supporters on Patreon help me cover hosting fees and upgrade my equipment while being able to choose to promote small businesses. There are a few changes this month. As of now, all supporters, starting at the Whistle While I Work level, or $1 a month, get an ad-free version of every episode one day early. Fairy godmothers like Jason and Mixie at the $5 level still get a bonus episode on the first of every month. This month, I explore Mary Poppins in depth, from Walt badgering a woman for the rights she didn't want to give to possible rape culture moments. Mary Poppins is practically perfect in every way. So come over and hear everything you didn't want to know about Mary Poppins. If you'd like to become a patron, you can search the show over at Patreon, or you can follow the link in the show notes or on my website. Today's episode is presented by State Bags. State Bags makes beautiful, well-made, inclusively cool products while using the power of business to give back and shift the narrative around social injustice. For every State Bag purchased, State hand-delivers a backpack, packed with essential tools for success to an American child in need. But their commitment goes beyond a simple material donation. State Bags has your back, and part of that commitment is making a difference in local kids' lives. To get you ready for your commute or wherever you're traveling next, State is offering my listeners 15% off their next purchase at statebags.com using the code POD. That's 15% off your next purchase using the code POD, P-O-D, at statebags.com. State Bags, they have your back. Welcome to Live Long and Prosper. In space, women are queens. Hey, Jen, who is this podcast for? Mixie, it's for anyone. Whether they've watched every episode or none at all, we're here to talk about the history and social implications of Star Trek from a feminist point of view. The Federation is female, after all. You're so right. Twice a month, we bring you a docu-series and commentary on the women of Star Trek how they work tirelessly to break the chains of convention and give us something to evolve toward. How women were portrayed in Trek through the ages and how that changed the world. How creators imagined different alien cultures and how they treated their women and how that reflected modern society. In short, join us to explore alien life and strange new worlds. To boldly go to the spaces these women made for us. A That's Not Kind of Productions podcast. The movie starts out with spots drawing Dalmatians. I didn't realize that the Lady and the Tramp dog running music was repeated for this movie, but now I do. In fact, as we go on, we'll find out a lot of things from Lady and the Tramp made it into this movie. There's a lot more jazz in this title sequence than any other theme. The spots form a musical score, and it seems like a much more involved title than the rest of the movies up till this point. In fact, I kind of remember this now that I'm watching it. A narrator starts telling the story, and I'd forgotten they were British. Interesting. Pongo's pet is Roger, the human, picking out songs on the piano. Roger's flat is filthy. Oh my. Pongo has decided that his pet needs a mate and is using magazines to determine what they like. He disapproves of Photoshop magazine models. Same, Pongo. Same. 
He looks out the window, and of all the weird little unimportant scenes in Disney, this has to be one of my favorites, if not my actual favorite. The dogs and humans walking by look exactly alike. We have an artist with an Afghan hound, a pug with a short lady, a fashion magnet with a poodle, an elderly lady with a cocker spaniel, a kid with a puppy, and a Dalmatian. Oh yeah, she has a pretty lady too. Now to get Roger to meet them. Pongo changes the clock, and I always wondered about how Roger's days went after this incident where he adjusted his whole life by 45 minutes. Was he seriously early for things? Was I a concerned, anxious child? Pongo is dragging Roger through the park like a bloodhound looking for a scent. This dog really wants his pet to get married. They pass all the women on the way. There they are! Now to walk past them like he didn't drag Roger into the park to look for them. So he steals Roger's hat, which, oh by the way, is the same hat the woman is wearing without a flower, and then the women leave. So what does Pongo do? He forces them into close quarters and throws them in the river. She gets mad for a bit, but then they realize the whole thing is hilarious. Roger and his wife get married in a church with absolutely no friends or family around them. That's actually super sad. There's a whole scene in the book where the dogs repeat the wedding vows, but that was removed because censors thought that it would offend religious audiences. Time passes, they zoom in, and Perdita sighs happily, which worries Pongo. I guess that, in this day and age, every sound a pregnant woman made was the beginning of the end. Nanny has always looked like Angela Lansbury to me. Dunno why, but she does. And yes, before you think it's the hat, I thought that before Beauty and the Beast. A horn sounds in the street, and Perdita says, It's that devil woman! Roger doesn't like Cruella. He writes what might be the greatest song about a terrible person ever. If she doesn't scare you, no evil thing will. To see her is to take a sudden chill. We all have those old school friends who are something to behold. Cruella storms in screaming, where are they? She's looking for puppies, and Anita's such a good person telling her to be patient for puppies who aren't hers, and the Cruella goes off about how amazing fur is and that Anita is trash because she doesn't have any. Again, things that bothered me about this as a child, why are they friends? Like, get rid of the negative people in your life. You don't need a Cruella. I don't care how long you've known them. Like, seriously, this woman put a cigarette out in a cupcake and trash-talked Anita's husband. Like, yeet her immediately. And that's before she starts getting weird about how pretty the dog's coats are. Roger's best and only villain song now continues, and I love it. Back to Pongo and Perdita. Pretty knows Cruella wants the puppies, and I don't think I noticed until just now that they worked really hard to not draw her pregnant. Back to that whole pregnancy censor thing. I wonder when that ended. I've been trying to Google that, but I can't seem to find an answer. Feel free to at me if you know. Bless Perdita. She's afraid her puppies will be taken from her. I tell you, these movies really hit you in the pregnancy and infertility feels. I would like them to not. Three months later, Roger and Pongo are sitting in the kitchen waiting for babies to be born, like every expectant father before they were allowed in the delivery room. That means Anita gave Perdita the living room to give birth, and everything that ladies' owners lacked, these people have. These people are definitely worthy of having dogs. Everyone's a wreck. Roger looks like he's going to have a stroke. Also, why is this clock going at twice the speed of every other pendulum clock ever? The puppies are here! It startles them. There are eight. That tracks. Wikipedia says that Dalmatians normally have six to nine puppies, but in 2011, a Dalmatian in a small town in Wales had a litter of 15. 15 puppies! More on that in a second. Oh, but back to the movie. We now have 10 puppies. 11, 13, 14, 15! Oh, wait, that's interesting. Disney predicted the largest litter of Dalmatian puppies ever. 
Okay, but what are they going to do with 17 dogs? That's a lot of dog. I mean, there's that chance that they're selling purebred Dalmatians, but they seem thrilled to keep them. How? Then Nanny brings in a little bundle wrapped in cloth and says 14 with a deep and abiding sadness. One of the puppies has been stillborn, and a child has just learned that babies can be born dead. Oof, right in the childhood. Roger does do this really great empathy moment with Pongo right before he starts to rub the little puppy corpse in time to the really fast clock as lightning strikes outside. I remember my dad trying to tell me what was going on here as Roger rubs the life back into this puppy, and in fact, I found a news article from 2012 where a Scottish Dalmatian wouldn't stop licking his stillborn pup, and the vigorous licking did revive the little one. So hey, we're officially in the most realistic Disney movie yet. Well, so far. Roger says he's as good as new, and literally, that puppy could not get newer. But then the thunder crashes, and Cruella is here. Like, seriously, I think she's the best Silver-era villain. Fight me. But she's disgusted because the pup doesn't have spots. In fact, Dalmatian puppies don't get spots for three to four months. That's a lot longer than I was expecting. You know, if Nanny had kept her dang mouth shut, they could have just been done with Cruella forever. But no, they'll get their spots. Just wait and see. I'm bad at English accents, I'm sorry. Yep, these people were planning to keep 17 dogs in their tiny house. Okie dokie, please explain. I don't think I noticed how much Cruella's coat is, well, sketchy in this scene. It looks like a storyboard sketch. Hmm, now that I look around, a lot of this looks like a storyboard sketch. Cruella's gonna buy these puppies, though. She shakes her phantom pen and all of its ink all over Roger and Pongo. You can't tell on Pongo, though. When can the puppies leave their mother? Two weeks? Three weeks? Puppies should not leave their mom before seven to eight weeks. Some breeders prefer 12. It gives them ample time to socialize with their moms before heading home. Oh, what I'm saying is, spoiler alert, she's going to kill these puppies and it won't matter. I'm going to point out that plot hole in a bit. Roger stands up to her, though. They are not selling the puppy. I mean, he stutters through it like she's going to skin him, but he does stand up to her. And the Cruella makes the best promise, I mean, threat ever. She's done with them. Um, well, darn, I'm soup sad to hear it, worst human I know. Please don't let the door hit you where the good lord split you. And then she breaks their window because they can afford to fix that. Like, okay, let's assume that Roger and Anita have no idea what Cruella's plans are here. Let's go through what's happened from their perspective. A friend from Anita's school days shows up and is absolutely the worst to both of them, but is fascinated by the puppies they haven't had yet. She shows up on the night the puppies are born, offers to pay twice what they're worth, and when they're like, um, no, we want them, she calls them fools and idiots and storms off. I mean, from their perspective, this cannot have made any sense. But in the real story, we have everyone celebrating Roger, who seems to have entered a catatonic state, so that's great for him. And Pongo tells Perdita that Roger has told Cruella where to shove it. So many puppies. Seg to three to four months later. We know because the puppies have their spots. They're watching a dog western on TV. So fun fact that I know because I'm me, dogs and cats couldn't actually see the old types of TVs because the refresh rate was slower than their eyes worked. Basically, until plasma screens, the picture on TV was actually created by a rapidly scrolling line of pixels that our slow human eyes detected as creating a whole picture. But to dogs and cats, it was just a line on the screen. It doesn't matter. This is a fantasy land where dogs can tell time. The boy dogs wear red collars and the girl dogs wear blue, I guess because we need to know the sex of the puppies to appreciate them. 
Lucky won't get out from in front of the TV. Rolly is always hungry. Okay, these people live in a townhouse with people on either side. They have 15 puppies that bark at the TV. This sounds great for their neighbors. Why do I know all of the lyrics to the Canine Crunchies jingle, but I can't remember the quadratic equation? Canine Crunchies can't be beat. They make each meal a special treat. Happy dogs are those who eat nutritious Canine Crunchies. Pongo tells Birdie to get the kids off to bed so they can have a walk, and you know, that's a great call, Mom and Dad. Take a moment to appreciate your time together so you can catch up with the kids. Lucky's still watching the TV. So do what all the smart dogs do, and you'll feel great the whole day through. You can be a champion, too, if you eat Canine Crunchies. Canine Crunchies is like the dog equivalent of sugary cereal, isn't it? The couple goes for a walk and past some skeevy-looking characters reading papers in a car. You know what? Disney got way better at storytelling as they went. I mean, with Cinderella, we'd be like halfway through and three things would have happened, but we're like a third of the way through and we've already gotten two couples together, had 15 puppies, broken up a toxic friendship, and had two very catchy songs, one of which is a jingle for an imaginary dog food. Jasper and Horace discuss illegalities and ambiguity and then drive like 300 meters up the street in a very loud car instead of, I don't know, walking silently. Jasper's pants are too short. Nanny's putting the puppies down when the doorbell rings. It's two men in the middle of the night to inspect the wiring and the switches. They have misspilled the bag from the gas. I mean electric company. Seems legit. I do like that Nanny's like, nope, not happening. They barge in anyway. Jasper locks Nanny in the upstairs room while Horace somehow gets 15 puppies into one bag in like two minutes. I mean, have you ever tried to get two puppies to do one thing? It's impossible. I am now imagining this process and it had to have been hilarious. Jasper lets go of the doorknob, and Nanny destroys the double bass and a piano. Okay, let's review. According to PetEducate.com, a purebred Dalmatian puppy can cost anywhere between $300 and $3,000. Even if these are the cheap version of Dalmatians, that's $4,500 worth of dog that have just been stolen. And then there's about $2,000 for a double bass and like $3,000 for a piano, and this couple just lost so much money, and that doesn't account for the heartbreak, which cannot be measured in dollars. As Nanny calls for the puppies, I just realized that I only know the boy's puppy's name in the movie. Excellent. They took the puppies. Whatever shall I do? Um, call the police with an excellent description of them. That's a good place to start. They had a phone in one scene, but Nanny's running up and down the street screaming, Police! Like, okay, there's gotta be a better way to handle this. Okay, we've got the press involved. That's good. Cruella makes fun of the headlines. You know what? As a kid, it didn't bother me when evil people didn't have motivation, but now I really want to know what's up with Cruella. Like, what makes her this way? I guess that's why we're getting villain movies? Jasper and Horace are calling Cruella demanding their pay. Look, if there's one thing every movie has ever taught me, it's pay your minions up front. They get you in way less trouble that way. Cruella is sitting in a giant pink bed with curlers in her hair and possibly fur-lined wings? It's a sight to behold, really, though. So now Cruella calls to gloat. Okay, villain lesson number two. Don't call to gloat. It's dumb. Take the win and walk away. Scotland Yard has already invested Cruella. That's interesting. I want to hear that interview of a Scotland Yard detective interrogating someone over the theft of a bunch of puppies. Pongo decides that humans are useless. They're going to use the Twilight Bark to look for puppies. Perdita seems concerned. That's just a gossip chain. Yeah, but what travels faster than gossip? Only bad news, and even Douglas Adams knew that was a problematic form of propulsion. Luckily, the dog's pets are totes cool with them barking at nothing at twilight in the park. Perhaps they're distracted by their grief. Oh, spoke too soon. Marmaduke is receiving the message, though. His best friend is a Yorkie, and people with one giant dog and one tiny dog crack me up. 
There's a couple with a husky and a Pomeranian I see walking at all hours near my daughter's school, and they have to have a time with it. So those dogs tell Jock from Lady and the Tramp. Jock tells the Afghan hound, whose name is Prissy. It gives me warm fuzzies to see how invested these dogs are in finding puppies they've never met. Y'all, if for a moment we could come together to care about people we don't know, imagine what we could do. The pet shop window has Peg and Bull from Lady and the Tramp. I don't know how all these dogs from Missouri got to London, but okay. Oh, and as the car with the poodle drives through the city, you can see a silhouette of Tramp on top of another car and one of Lady in the Street. This is a fun activity. Soon enough, the entirety of London is barking, but it fades as we pan to the countryside. Oh, look, it's Trusty. No, wait, his name is Towser here. Towser is willing to bark all night if it saves these puppies. This is so sweet. There's a whole military regiment in this barn in the country. There's a living haystack of a dog named the Colonel. As a kid, whenever I'd hear the dogs go up at nightfall, I would imagine what they were passing along. The Colonel listens and hears that 15 spotted puddles have been stolen from London. Of course, that's Balderdash. Wonder what they're on about. Sergeant Tibbs is like, um, that makes no sense. Please try again. There have been puppies barking over at Hell Hall, the old DeVille place. In other words, the devil place is Hell Hall. They'd better investigate. Tibbs sneaks into the manor and immediately sees a Dalmatian puppy. He inquires as to their provenance, and the puppy says there are 99 puppies bought and paid for. Okay, so here's where the plot started to break down for me as a child. Corella could buy and pay for 84 puppies, but she had to steal 15 from an old schoolmate? Like, why? Regardless, this room is a dream of a puppy pile. There are 15, quote, little ones over by the TV with colors and names, so the rest of these puppies have been here a while. More plot holes in a second. This cat's trying to count the 15 and not be seen by the baddies. This leads to my favorite moment where Jasper tries to drink Tibbs and he flips out because cats. Lucky could not give two figs about the commotion. He just wants to watch TV. Jasper then threatens to eat the cat because that's the logical threat to a random animal wandering into a broken down old house. Meanwhile, after what we can assume was about two quiet hours, the dogs in London have broken out barking again, and their poor owners must be beside themselves trying to figure out what the heck is happening at 10 p.m. The Great Dane runs the pair through London and buries the lead by waiting until the very end to tell them they're headed to the DeVille place. And like, Anita and Roger are about to wake up to their two grown dogs missing. This is almost like their children just disappearing into the night after their grandchildren have gone missing. I hope they're okay. Holy crap, y'all, I just Google Maps this, and Suffolk is a hell of a long way from London. Assuming that both residences are in the middle of each city, it's 95.7 miles, or 154 kilometers. It takes almost two hours to drive it, and I use that neat little if-I-walked option, and it takes 25 hours to walk. In the winter! Oh, God! The Colonel and Sergeant Tibbs are waiting for Pongo and Purdy to get there when Cruella's car swerves its way up to the gate. Cruella's screaming at her pair of dolts that, quote, it must be done tonight. Horace explains that they aren't big enough, and he's got a point that I'm going to get to when we find out what it is. Horace explains that they aren't big enough, and he's got a point. They're going to make coats out of the puppies. Dogskin coats. They won't get half a dozen. Okay, so let's talk about this. Again, Cruella bought 84 puppies, with no one being at all concerned about this. No one cared because she bought them outright. She owns them. And bless the subreddit, they did the math, because someone has asked the question about how many puppies it would take to make a coat. If you don't like thinking about living things being made into coats, why are you listening to this podcast about a children's cartoon about it? But also skip forward a few seconds. I'll make it brief. 
Okay, so according to this subreddit, a website that no longer exists said it takes about 30 to 70 minks to make a coat because they're about 24 inches or 61 centimeters long. That's about the size of a small Dalmatian puppy. So given conservative estimates, Cruella can make three coats out of these 99 puppies. For what it's worth, ConquerMaths.com has also done this math and they agree that she could have made three fabric lined coats or one fully lined fur coat and a muff. But you know what's bigger than puppies? Full-grown dogs! So if these puppies are about four months old, that makes them about 65 pounds, which is about half of their final weight. And that means if she had just kept the 84 and raised them until they were grown, that's divide by two, carry the one, double the coats! So why did she steal the 15? Like, if you want to be evil, sure, but don't pretend you have, like, a real goal while you do it. And yes, I asked my parents why they didn't wait for the puppies to grow up when I was a kid because I was a very strange child. Anyway, the police are after Corella because she's dumb and stole beloved puppies, and she hasn't decided how to kill the puppies. She's left these dolts to decide. Like, Corella's just been a poor planner the whole way. Jasper and Horace proceed to watch What's My Crime, while Tibbs proceeds to shoot each of the puppies out of the hole in the wall. The premise of this show is that the contestants ask 10 yes or no questions to determine a person's crime, and if they don't guess it, the criminal gets a two-week paid vacation after they're done in prison. It is when this program ends that the duo realizes they have lost 99 puppies. Tibbs is trying so hard to save all these puppies, and it's like, well, it's like herding puppies. And as Pongo and Perdita run to the rescue, we have this adorable scene of Tibbs blocking all these puppies with his arms. And you know, after the last two depictions of cats, Cinderella and Lady and the Tramp, it's really nice to see Disney give us a nice, brave cat. There's a comedic fight with really hefty consequences as the bad guys hurt each other while fighting dogs. The Pongos are reunited with their babies in a barn in an adorable scene. They realize there are 99 puppies, and they discover that Cruella was going to kill all these puppies for the potential of a coat. And the solution is to trek 99 puppies back across the English countryside. Again, it takes an adult human 25 hours to walk it. I have no idea how long it takes an adult dog to run it, but I can't imagine trudging 99 puppies through the snow can be any faster than a human walking on the road. And puppies don't have temper regulation like adult dogs. There's this heartbreaking scene as the puppies trudge through the snowstorm. Lucky's at the back because he's the runt and he almost died when he was born. And he talks about cold the way I do. My ears are frozen. My nose is frozen. My tail is frozen. I feel you, Lucky. A collie's been waiting for them. They have shelter at the dairy barn. And honestly, this whole community of dogs coming together to take care of all these puppies is the sweetest thing These babies are hungry, so the cows provide them milk directly from the udder. I kind of wonder about their human the next morning, wondering why their milk was light, but oh well. The collie has scraps to make it to the next stop. A Labrador in Dinsford has a pet that's a grocer. I can't find Dinsford through Google Maps. Oh well. The point is, these dogs have set up a network of secret locations for them to stop at. And the Labrador has a van that's going to London. But blast, Cruella has tracked them to this town that doesn't exist. They have to get into the van without her seeing them. Everyone roll in the soot so they look like Labrador. Um, is this the dog version of blackface? I'm going to try not to think about it. Okay, so they don't look like Dalmatians, but there are 101 of them. That feels like it draw some attention. And as the suited up puppies run in front of Cruella's car, dripping water makes them photonegative Dalmatians. Black dogs with white spots. Oh no, 
a falling pile of snow cleans a puppy so thoroughly that soap and water isn't ever needed, and the chase is on. Cruella tries to run a moving truck off the road, and then there's some casual misogyny thrown around there. She drives off a cliff and safely lands in a snowdrift, then proceeds to get out of the gully in a Mad Max level of driving. She rams the truck again, getting her head like stuck in its axle, and let's for a moment spare a thought for this poor lorry driver who does not know what the hell is going on. Jasper and Horace lose control of their van, plow into Cruella, and despite them destroying both their cars, land safe and sound in the snow despite Corella calling them idiots. Meanwhile, back in London, the Radcliffe's are listening to a jazz singer sing Roger's song on the radio. Hey, he's a successful songwriter. Anita's decorating the Christmas tree and congratulating him on his first hit song. She says, It's made more money than we ever dreamed of. And that really gives me the answer to another question I've asked my whole life, but more on that in a moment. Roger's upset that Pongo and Purdy have run away, and yeah, those dogs have had to have been gone for about four days. A year ago, my Gandalf disappeared for six days, and I was so distraught you could have made tea from my stress. He's okay, though. He just didn't bring back any dragon gold that we can find. Nanny's a wreck. She can't stop thinking about those puppies. Poor Nanny. As she says she dreams about the dogs barking, there's barking at the door, and she scurries to answer it. And Labradors burst into the house. Nanny sees the soot, though. They're home just in time for Christmas. It's strongly implied in the film proper, but deleted scenes explicitly reveal that the day the dogs make it back to London is in fact supposed to be Christmas Eve. And there are puppies and soot everywhere. Nanny starts counting, and these dogs are kind enough to stand still while being dusted. There are 101, and Anita's like, where'd they all come from? And Roger insinuates that Pongo's been up and down the United Kingdom impregnating dogs and collecting puppies, because, okay... We'll have a Dalmatian plantation. Um, ugh, no, thank you. But Roger writes a new jazz song about it, so okay. In the meantime, these poor next-door neighbors have 99 Dalmatian puppies barking. And that brings us back to the money that he made on the song, which answers the question I had as a child, which was, how are they going to feed 101 Dalmatians and buy a farm in the country? Well, because he made a whole bunch of money off of the song, I wasn't paying attention to that part when I was a kid. I mean, we got pretty far into this movie before we got into potential dog blackface with a reference to the Underground Railroad, which led them to a plantation. But you know what? It's still a beautiful and wholesome movie that, now that I see it, is made all the more endearing by the sketch lines you can see as they move. It might not have been something that Walt Disney loved, but I feel like it makes it way more organic and thoughtful. And it really highlights the dilapidated locations that the movie focuses on. But I want to know what you think of 101 Dalmatians. What do you remember from this movie as a kid? Is this where you learn that sometimes babies can be born dead and that women like to skin small furry animals for coats? Or did it teach you the importance of family and what parents will do for their kids? Both? It could do both. Let me know on my social media. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under Oof My Childhood. Pop on there and tell me about your 101 Dalmatian memories. This episode's cover art was created by Alexander Pick. He has some amazing art on his Instagram. I've linked to that in the show notes. Go check it out, y'all. If you'd like to provide fan art for a future episode, you can drop me a message on my social media or fill out the form on my website, oofmychildhood.com. My theme music was composed and played by Sean Rudolph of Let Music Be. For more information on that studio, you can visit their website at letmusic.be or check the show notes for an easy link. You can find transcripts for each episode on my website, and if you check out my YouTube channel, I have captioned video versions of each episode as they're published. I do my best to provide YouTube videos and transcripts at the same time as each podcast episode is released, 
But if this one isn't up yet, you can always check on my website for an update and a link to the appropriate video. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you come back on January 11th to discuss Disney Through Modern Eyes. In the meantime, this is a great time to let your friends know about the podcast. They have time to get caught up and get ready for the rest of the Disney canon. I'd also appreciate you taking the time to give the podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or wherever you're listening to the show. That helps new people find the show. This podcast is written and recorded by me. This episode was edited by Anastasia Saff. I release a new episode every Monday through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many, many other podcatchers. So until next time, keep the magic alive. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.